Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 23rd, 2015. And tonight we will continue with Esther, Fraud or Fable, Part 2. All Jews are liars, and of course, the book of Esther could be a fraud or a fable. It sure as hell isn't a fact. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It looks like there's going to be a part three of, of this um, Esther presentation while we are our, while we are on the road next week, and and that's fine. It, it's um, I want to do it thoroughly and and refute thoroughly the idea that this is a legitimate biblical book. It should have never, ever been in Scripture. There should be 65 books in the Old Testament, and then we should start adding back in some of the books that were removed, and removed unjustly. Probably one Enoch, even though the, um, the book of Enoch, as most people know it, is not all legitimate, and it's not all the same book. The book of Enoch, one Enoch, as it's um, sold by artisan publishers, translated by Charles or um, the other fellow, I think his name was Richard Lawrence. That book is actually four or five different books that had, were concatenated in ancient times, and only a part of them are legitimate. The um, the apostles quoted Enoch, and they must have been familiar with a, a version of the book of Enoch, which was actually scriptural. The wisdom of Solomon found in the um, found in the apocrypha. That book should definitely be in scripture. It should be in scripture right between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, because they were both written by Solomon, as well as the Song of Solomon, which Compare rejected and which we will talk about probably next week in brief at the end of this um, presentation, because Compare talked about it at the end of his own sermon on Esther, which we are going to follow here, which we started following actually last week. And um, Compare talked about it, and Compare rejected the Song of Solomon because it doesn't mention God. And that is true, it doesn't mention God. But if we understand the Song of Solomon the way it should be understood, it is God. The male figure in the Song of Solomon is Yahweh. It doesn't have to mention God. It's all about God. The female figure in the Song of Solomon are the children of Israel as a nation. The entire song is an allegory celebrating the marriage of Yahweh and Israel. In part one of Esther, Fraud or Fable, this past Saturday, we hope to have established as fact 
that the Esther narrative does not fit into the histories of any of the kings of Persia, especially taking into consideration the circumstances and, of course, the proper chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the internal circumstances of the Esther story, such as the chronology which the book itself provides. We had walked through each of the kings of Persia, from Cyaxares, even before the empire, and Astyages, to Cyrus, who is the, um, the founder of the Persian Empire, all the way down to Darius III, the last Persian king before Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great. And we illustrated the problems which materialize which I, with identifying any one of those Persian kings as the king of Esther. The shoe doesn't fit any of them. We also spoke at length about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fact that not only is any portion of Esther entirely missing from those scrolls, but in addition, the Feast of Purim is not mentioned in any of the extensive calendrical writings found among the scrolls. Now, as we have often discussed before at Christogenia, but which we didn't discuss last week, the Dead Sea Scrolls can, with all certainty, be dated to the time of Roman rule over Judea. And while Jerusalem was still intact, to the 130-year period between 65 B.C. and 65 A.D., the, um, the sectarian documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls, such as the War Scroll, prove that beyond all doubt. So the sect which created those scrolls, obviously not having Purim on their calendars, not having any portion of Esther in their canon, did not have the Esther story among their holy scriptures. In the in addition to the additions to Esther, which we discussed last week, which is found in the King James Apocrypha, there was even more material than we had initially described, and actually more than I had even remembered, which is found in the version of Esther in the Septuagint, or in any of the Greek manuscripts, that is not found in any version based upon the Masoretic text. Now, although I never read the full version of Esther in the Septuagint, I was well aware that there were additional passages not found in the Hebrew versions of the story. However, I was not aware or did not remember that all of these had also made it into the King James Apocrypha. Realizing that Esther was a fable at an early time in my studies, it is likely that perhaps I did not even care to remember. However, in part one of this presentation, we concentrated on the history, and now in part two of this presentation, we shall begin to focus on the actual text. Among the additions to Esther, which we will continue to call additions because they are found only in the Greek, are a long preface which describes a vision which Mort the Mordecai character had supposedly had 
before the main content of the story began. The text describing the vision is, of course, worded in a way that would make one believe that the Jews alone represent all of Israel. This is curious, because Flavius Josephus had purposely written his publication of Wars of the Judeans, the first publication, in Aramaic, he only later translated it into Greek. And as he himself says, he wrote it in Aramaic and sent it to the quote-unquote upper barbarians so that all of their nation which were beyond Euphrates would have raised an insurrection together with them. In several places, Josephus describes those upper barbarians as the dispersed children of Israel. He associates them with people such as the Gauls, the Alans, and the Parthians, but he never calls them Jews. The writings of the Old Testament prophets, Paul of Tarsus, and the other apostles would certainly agree with Josephus. However, even the copies the Hebrew copies of the book of Esther give us the false impression that the captivity of Judah, which we will call Jews in relation to Esther, because Esther is a Jewish book, but the captivity of Judah certainly were not Jews. Esther gives us the impression that they represent all of Israel, which is certainly not even close to the truth. We will further discuss some of the Greek fragments interpolated throughout the Greek version of Esther as we progress through our assessment of the text itself. We plan on doing this by presenting Bertrand Compare's refutation of the book of Esther and amending or adding things which we think are necessary as we proceed. We have already presented the first few paragraphs of Compare's refutation of Esther here last week. First, we will discuss a few other aspects of the lengthy preface to Esther found in the Septuagint. In part one of this presentation, we discussed the chronology of Esther as it appears in Esther chapter 2, where it says, now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, of Benjamin, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom the book of Nezar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. We then asserted that if Esther 2.6, where it says, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, meaning at the time of Jeconiah, that if Esther 2.6 refers to Mordecai, as many people believe, then this statement dates the events of Esther to the earliest Persian kings, before Cyrus had put the empire under the Persians, as some Jewish scholars also assert. And that's because, well, how long could Mordecai live? or Mordecai would indeed have been a very old man after Cyrus had put the empire under the Persians. Yet the circumstances of Esther insist that the story be set after the time of Cyrus. 
So Esther 2.6, where it says, who had been carried away, is frequently interpreted so as to refer to Mordecai's grandfather, Kish. And as we also discussed, if it was Kish who was carried away in the time of Jeconiah, any reasonable calculation of the four generations down to Mordecai from Kish would put him in the palace at Shushan in the days of Artaxerxes I. And it is highly unlikely, even impossible, for the events detailed in Esther to have occurred in the days of Artaxerxes I. However, in the Greek preface to Esther, we see this. In the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the great king, on the first day of Nisan, Mordecai, the son of Jairus, the son of Semias, the son of Kisias, as Kish is called, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew dwelling in the city Susa, which is the Shushan of, of the Hebrew texts, as the King James translators wrote it. A great man, serving in the king's palace, saw a vision. Now he was of the captivity which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried captive from Jerusalem with Jeconias, the king of Judea. Now one may argue over the semantics of this passage, but it certainly seems to infer that Esther 2.6 does refer to Mordecai and not to his great-grandfather. Yet the second year, of the Persian king popularly known as Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes I, would be about 464 BC, about 134 years after Jeconiah was taken prison to Babylon. We shall mention other anomalies in his preface to Esther later in his presentation. With this, we are going to return to Bertrand Compare, we're going to intersperse a lot of our own comments here. So anyway, this unnamed, or we should say non-existent, king gave a six-month-long feast for his nobles. And it, mean, it mentions how plentiful the wine supply was. And at the end of a six-month debauch for the nobles, he gave a lesser party of one week for the less important people who worked at the palace. And of course, this is a reference to the 180-day feast mentioned in Esther chapter 1, verse 4, and the lesser seven-day feast which followed. And Compare says, while drunk, he commanded that his queen, Vashti, be brought out and shown to the people so that they could see her beauty. And if you think that meant Vashti being brought out dressed in royal robes, it didn't. She was to be brought out naked so they could see her physical beauty. Now, it's my opinion that Compre is conjecturing this aspect of the book, where he asserts that the king wanted all the princes to look upon his naked wife. I don't agree with that conjecture. I do not know where they may be, where there may be a textual or historical basis for that. But since it never really occurred, it doesn't really matter. I see the, um, the Persians, for the most part, unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians before them, the Persians seem to be, from history, 
a much more moral people than the Assyrians and the Babylonians were, even if they too were um, what were what we would consider to be pagans. Confrey continues. Well, she, being a dignified person, refused to do this. And, and this is more conjecture, but it does fit in with the typically decadent Jewish lust for feminine beauty, which is so prevalent in Jewish art and literature. But we don't have to go far to see that. So the drunken king called a council of some seven or eight of his drunken nobles to decide what should be done to punish a queen who refused to do what her husband told her to do. And, by the way, you cannot find a Persian name among all these nobles. They are all Semitic and Babylonian names. These noblemen said, well, this is more serious than you realize. It is not only that she defied you, but if you let her get away with this, then our wives will also refuse to obey us, and every husband in the kingdom is going to have trouble making his wife obey. So they said, depose her as queen, fire her, get another queen in her place. Imagine the Jews writing a, a, a treatise against feminism. Compare is to a small degree elaborating on the story beyond the actual text. It is entertaining, but not quite accurate. It is true, however, that all of the chamberlains, these seven princes, as they are described in the text, that all of the chamberlains and other most trusted court members mentioned in Esther have non-Persian names. They're either Hebrew or Aramaic names, which is quite incredible. While we know from other biblical writings that men such as Daniel and Nehemiah attained high administrative offices and trust within the Persian court, it seems to be quite unusual for all of the important court officers in Susa who were called in the text the seven princes of Persia, and we um, discussed from Herodotus the pages of Herodotus last week, how Persia, from the time of Darius the Great, Darius I, who was um, several kings before Artaxerxes, how from the time of Darius I, there were seven noble families who had made an agreement to always intermarry with each other so that they could control the throne and the court of Persia. So these seven princes of Persia that are mentioned in the first chapter of the book of Esther are consistent, this idea, are consistent with that idea in Herodotus. And it's odd it's awfully strange that all these seven princes of Persia have Hebrew and Aramaic names. That makes no sense whatsoever, unless, of course, the Book of Esther is a work of Jewish fiction. We shall see later that even Haman and his father are described as having Hebrew names. We would think that the author of the fable could have thought up at least a couple of realistic Persian names. Haman and his father have Hebrew names. They decided that going back to Compare and talking about 
Vashti being deposed. They decided that sounded like the best thing for drunken people to decide. So they went ahead with that decision, and he deposed her. That, in substance, is chapter 1 of the book of Esther. So the king, according to the book, had all the most beautiful virgins of the kingdom brought in and put in his harem. And they were there, they were to be there a year before he inspected any of them to see if any of them was sufficiently attractive to become queen. During that time, if one was too fat, they could put her on a diet and slim her down. And if she was too thin, they could feed her well and build her up, so that whenever she got to see the king, she was in her most attractive condition. And as we have pointed out last week, this tale seems to fit the character of Artaxerxes III, who, had, who, who didn't rule until the um, later part of the 4th century AD, way too late for Mordecai, and who had hundreds of wives in his harem. However, other details of Esther defy the idea that Artaxerxes three could have been the king of this book. Compare, of course, continues to add entertaining details to his account, which can't always be substantiated. And he says, the story goes on to say that one Mordecai, a Jew who lived at the king's palace, had brought up his cousin as, ostensibly, his daughter. In the English translation, they give her name as Esther. In the original, it gave her name as Hadassah, have you read in the society columns of your newspapers about the Jewish Women's Society of Hadassah doing this and that? Well, that is the Hebrew equivalent of what is called Esther in your Bible. And here we must say, even though we love Capere, and he's usually very good about his historical details, but here... He's just wrong. Compare is confused. Because Hadassah and Esther are each English transliterations of two different names. Evidently, Esther had two names. And, and this we also see in um, the book of Daniel and in other Hebrew writings of the period, where the captives would be given a Babylonian name in the case of Daniel and his companions, right? Daniel became Balthasar or something like that, and Abnego, and, and each of Daniel's companions had a different Babylonian name in addition to their Hebrew name. So Esther had, and I'm not saying that, that Esther is original, but Esther had a, um, in the narrative, she's given a Persian name, supposedly, in addition to her Hebrew name. In the text, it's very clear that Hadassah was her Hebrew name, and Esther, according to Strong's, is a Persian name. And in reality, it is the same name. Esther is the same name as the Assyrian and Babylonian idol Ishtar, the fertility goddess. The enhanced Strong's concordance in the BibleWorks software, version 8, assigns the same meaning to Esther and the very similar-sounding Ashtoreth. Although they, although they are from different Hebrew words, because the vowel at the beginning it is different, Hebrew 
In Hebrew, both of those words mean star, according to the modern enhanced Strong's Concordance in Bible works. Let us read from Esther 2.7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So Esther had a Hebrew and a supposedly Persian name, but the Persian chamberlains of the king's court had only Hebrew names. That's kind of strange. Why would the princes of Persia all have Hebrew names? And while the name Esther can be related to Ishtar, similar can be said for the name Mordecai. Now, while the name Mordecai evidently did belong to one other individual of the period, who is mentioned among the returning remnant of the time of Zorobabel, both in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because they both list the returnees in the time of Zorobabel. And while it is evident that some of the Judeans did adopt foreign names and language during the captivity, even at that early time, the name Mordecai is nevertheless related to the name of the Assyrian and Babylonian idol. Marduk. Marduk was the, the, the chief god of the Assyrian pantheon and the principal god of the Babylonian pantheon, which came later. The Babylonians taking the Assyrian empire had added the Assyrian gods to their own pantheon. The, um, the fact in, in, in Assyrian theology, if we have to call it that, it, and it's really ideology or ideology. In Assyrian ideology, I'll call it that, the um, Ishtar and Marduk figures were basically cousins, and Esther and, and Mordecai are cousins. We'll continue with Kapare. When the king was having all the most beautiful virgins brought into his harem, Esther, or Hadassah, was among them. And she was kept there in the king's harem for a year before she got to see this king. And that one-year period of waiting is described in Esther chapter 2, verse 12. Now during, now during all this time, although this was an oriental country with oriental customs, Mordecai got to go into the harem every day to talk with Esther, according to the book. And what... Compre is driving at there is that in truth, Mordecai would never have been able to get near anywhere near the royal harem or the woman's quarters. And in the ancient palaces of the East, the women's quarters, which was an entire suite of rooms, and, and in this case, since it could hold hundreds of women, it must have been a, a, a pretty huge collection of rooms, the women's quarters were typically constructed in the innermost, innermost portions of the palace. And that was for the purpose of defense and for the purpose of um, safeguarding the women of the king's harem. And that was important to the kings, of course, because 
they wanted to ensure that their offspring were truly their offspring, that their chosen heirs to the throne would really be their sons. This was so important that the the custom of the eunuch developed, which was the servants who watched over the king's harem, and they were eunuchs because their testicles were removed. Their testicles were removed to ensure that even if they could possibly screw around, which I can't imagine after your testicles are removed, they couldn't impregnate any of the women. These women were extremely closely guarded to ensure that the king's offspring really belonged to the kings. And this went on in ancient Egypt and all throughout the ancient Near East. So in the ancient world, men did not get near the king's harems. And if they did, it was usually off with the head. Mordecai would have been crucified, which was actually the Persian method of execution at the time. There were no casual visits to the women's quarters of royal palaces. This wasn't just some row of buildings that you could walk outside and down the street, that these huge palaces were heavily fortified, heavily guarded, that there were probably several walls fortified walls between the outside walls and the women's quarters and the heart of the palace. That this, is, that this whole picture here that's drawn by this book of Esther it seems like it's, it's um, almost like a, a, a pastoral Arab setting where they kept their whores in tents next to their camels or something. This is, in, in ancient Persia, if you understand that the archaeology and the absolute magnificence of the construction of these ancient palaces, this is so out of place with reality and, and the historical accounts that it's unreal. There was no women's live in ancient Persia. So the movements of the women themselves were highly restricted. They just couldn't come and go as they pleased. They were always under guard. The entire circumstances of the Book of Esther in this regard are unreal and contrary to all historical precedent. There's no way that this Jew out by the gate would get into the king's harem every day. In Esther chapter 2, after Esther was admitted to the harem, and just before it was explained why Esther and the other maidens had to wait a year to see the king, we read, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the woman's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Off of the head. Mordecai, as Compare, we'll continue with Compare for a, for a paragraph here. Mordecai was, a well known, was well known as a Jew. Esther was known to have been raised as his daughter. And every day during the year, she was in the king's harem this Jew. Supposedly her father, actually her uncle, 
called there to talk with her. And yet nobody suspected that she was a Jewess. In the meantime, Mordecai discovered that some people were conspiring to murder the king, to assassinate him. So he went to the harem and told Esther about this. And, of course, that's absolutely fantastic. Now, here again, you get another curious thing brought in here. According to the book, even the queen herself could not send any message to the king, which is detailed in Esther chapter 4. No matter how important, she would have been killed if she had done so. She had to wait until such times as the king chose to send for her. And then, if he said, you may speak, she could say, well, can I tell you something? And if he said yes, she could go ahead. Otherwise, they would kill her, according to the book of Esther. And this is yet another strange anomaly about the book of Esther. But it is even stranger if we were to accept the preface found only in the Greek copies of Esther. In that preface, it says in part, and Mordecai rested quiet in the palace with Gabatha and Sarah, the king's two chamberlains, Hebrew words, of course, eunuchs who, were guard, who guarded the palace, and he heard their reasoning and searched out their plans and learned that they were preparing to lay hands on King Artaxerxes, and he informed the king concerning them, in the book of Esther, um, it's basically taken for granted that Ahasuerus, in the Greek copies, it's taken for granted that that refers to Artaxerxes. And the king examined the two chamberlains, and they confessed, and were executed. And the king wrote these things for a memorial. Also, Mordecai wrote concerning these matters. And the king commanded Mordecai to attend in the palace and gave gifts for this service. This conflicts with the whole rest of the Esther account in more ways than one. But Comparate did well to point out that even the Hebrew copy of the book sets forth that Mordecai was a well-known Jew. And even if he could have visited the harem daily, which is absolutely incredible, then Esther would not have been able to conceal the identity of her nation or her people. During the year, back to Capere for a bit, during the year that she was in the harem, Esther, knowing about the plot to murder the king, had to keep silent about it. Eventually, the king chose her as queen, and then she got an opportunity to tell him about the assassination plot, and so he had the conspirators hanged. But remember now, the king knew of this, because he is the one who ordered the hanging of the conspirators, and he ordered the official record to be made that Mordecai was the one who had given the information that enabled him to hang the conspirators before they could get around to assassinating him. The book does not explain why they were so negligent in letting it drift almost a year before Esther got a chance to warn the king. But anyway, they hadn't bumped him off in that time. And here, before we proceed, we're going to read a portion of Esther chapter 2 from verse 16. 
So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his house, royal house, in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, if we recall earlier in Esther, she was taken into the harem and had her year weighed from the third year of his reign. Now it's the seventh year, according to Esther. And the king loved Esther above all the women. He took four years to make his mind up, I guess. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. I guess we'll call that Easter now. I'm kidding, sort of. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together for the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, even though every day for four years Mordecai's been coming to the king's harem to talk to her. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigson and Teresh, kind of different names there from the Septuagint, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hands on the king. Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof, and this is very important because we'll talk about it later, and Esther certified or assured the king that this is true in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now we do not know where Compare saw a one-year delay in the discovery of the plot against the king. Actually, four years had passed since Esther was first brought to the harem in the third year of the king. We don't know where Compare saw a one-year delay in the discovery of the plot against the king and the warning passed on by Esther from the account, as it appears here. However, perhaps Compare was familiar to the preface to Esther, which is found in the Greek, which tells of visions that came to Mordecai in the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which would supposedly be five years before this time in Esther chapter 2. And we're going to read that because it absolutely conflicts with the rest of the book of Esther. And these things prove right off the bat that these Greek additions to the book of Esther are just even worse fiction than the book of Esther itself. These, the book of Esther doesn't mention God at all. And, and people that support the book of Esther love to point out that the real copy is the Greek version of the book of Esther because the Greek version mentions God all the time. Well, God's only mentioned in these additions found in the Greek 
text of Esther. And the additions to the Greek text of Esther often say things which are totally contrary to what we find in the book of Esther. And this preface is the most exemplary of that. And here we see um, where it says in the second year of Artaxerxes, because that's when the preface is set, and which is a year before the, the Hebrew Masoretic text version of the book of Esther even begins, because that doesn't begin until the third year. And Marlokaeus rested quiet in the palace with Gabba and Thara, the king's two chamberlains, eunuchs who guarded the palace. And he heard their reasoning and searched out their plans and learned that they were preparing to lay hands on King Artaxerxes. And he informed the king concerning them, though Esther involved once again. And the king examined the two chamberlains, and they confessed, and they were executed. And the king wrote these things for a memorial. Also, Marlachius, or Mordecai, wrote concerning these matters. And the king commanded Mordecai to attend in the palace and gave gifts for this service. So the preface, the Greek preface to Esther, contradicts Esther chapter 2, which claims that this plot was revealed in the seventh year of Artaxerxes through Esther rather than in the second year directly from Mordecai to the king. But that is not all. In Esther chapter 6 we read in verse 1, and this is of the night between the two feasts, which Esther later has for the king and for Haman. The night of the first feast, and the next day is going to be the second feast, and we read, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigsana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus and the king said what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this then said the king's servants that ministered unto him there is nothing done for him but the preface to Esther that puts this in the second year of Artaxerxes says that Mordecai himself told of the plot and had received gifts for it so there's a serious problem between the preface to Esther and the Greek, it's in direct contradiction, even to itself, even to the Greek version of Esther chapter 6 and Esther chapter 2. We must also wonder about Esther chapter 2, verse 22, where it says of the plot, and the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. Why was Mordecai not rewarded immediately? But more importantly, according to Esther 2.16, it is now in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Therefore, if according to Esther 2.20, Esther had not yet revealed her nation and people, and Mordecai was known to be a Jew, how could Esther have explained being in the harem for nearly four years by this time and having anything to do with Mordecai, since she evidently informed the king that she had gotten her information from Mordecai. The book of Esther says several times that Mordecai sat in the king's gate. What does that mean? 
That was the traditional place in the cities of the East where lawyers and magistrates sat to handle any legal cases that would arise. The Bible often makes mentions of those who reproach in the gate. That's where the lawyers sat. That's where the judges sat. Therefore, Mordecai must have been a Jew lawyer. Why would a maiden in the harem of the king have anything to do with a Jew lawyer and still be able to conceal her identity as a Jew? The entire premise to the book of Esther is ridiculous. None of it washes, but there's still much more to be discredited. It says that one Haman had been made prime minister above all the princes. So Haman became prime minister. I'm reading copper right now. Now, he was a very wealthy man, and it gives you a hint of how this came about. It says, all year long they cast per, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day and month to month, casting lots, in other words, dice. This was the early progenitor of Las Vegas. And since in all gambling games the odds are weighed in favor of the house, and quite often helped along a little bit by sundry scientific methods, Haman became very, very wealthy, in addition to being second in power only to the king in the kingdom. Now Mordecai the Jew refused to bow to Haman, which enraged Haman greatly. This was an insult to his dignity, so he began plotting revenge. He went to the king and told the king that the Jews were a people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom. And it said the kingdom was divided into 127 provinces. And here were these wicked Jews scattered throughout the kingdom. So Haman offered to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver if the king would grant him the privilege of massacring the Jews and stealing whatever property they have. A talent was 65 pounds in weight, which is true, just about. So 65 times 10,000 would be 650,000 pounds of silver, which was true, which worked out as roughly equal to about $20 million whenever Capre wrote this. And then, when you translate that into the greater purchasing power of money in that day, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be the equivalent of offering the king $20 billion in terms of today's money values for the privilege of killing off the Jews and taking their property. And of course, we've had a lot of more inflation since Capre wrote. Contrary to the actions of any Oriental monarch that I have ever read about, the king turned down the offer and said, Oh, be my guest. Do it free of charge. He wouldn't accept this $20 million. He said, Just go ahead and kill them. And Compare's comments are a bit sarcastic, but it would seem odd for a king to turn down such a huge sum of money offered freely for something which he was agreeable to do. Furthermore, Esther 4.7 conflicts with Esther 3.11, where we read in 3.11, And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee. In other words, he wouldn't take it, like Kampare said. 
He didn't want the silver. The silver is given to me. The people also. So Haman gets to keep his silver and have his pleasure with the Jews. To do with them as it seems good to thee. Yet in Esther 4, 7 we read, And Mordecai told him, meaning Hatak, one of the chamberlains of the king, of all that happened to him, and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews, to destroy them. But if the king told Haman to keep the money, then there were no promises of money to the king's treasuries. So Esther 4, 7 is in direct conflict with Esther 3.11, and it's irresolvable. What is contrary to the sensibilities of any Persian monarch, however, is that the king would trust the word of a single officer and allow an entire ethnicity within his empire to be destroyed without a particular accounting of the reasons. The Persian kings of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah were consistently portrayed as noble and relatively fair-minded men. The um, decrees of Cyrus, of Darius I, and of Artaxerxes, as those decrees are recorded in the book of Daniel, in the book of Nehemiah, and in the book of Ezra, are all very kind to the Judeans. Persia, in the days of Artaxerxes I, had basically, not long before this, finished a great war against the Greeks in which they suffered very heavy losses. And it can be proven from history, from Herodotus and other histories, that the Judeans were a great help to the Persians in that war, especially in terms of shipbuilding and other skills. It's highly unlikely that Artaxerxes, on the heels of that war, and, and um, when there's a hundred years, practically, of very good relations between the Judeans and the Persians, and Artaxerxes himself had signed very favorable commands and orders in commissioning Ezra to return to Jerusalem in the seventh year of his reign, just around the same time that this is supposedly going on, and really looked out for Ezra in his um, commission to rebuild Jerusalem, that Artaxerxes would do a thing like this. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Or that any Persian king thereafter would do a thing like this. Because as we shall see, there were laws, very favorable laws, made, decreed by the Persian emperors in favor of the Judeans. And the laws of the Judeans were not allowed, I'm sorry, the laws of the Persians were not allowed to be changed by their kings. And we will see that coming up. Back to Compare. So the king issued an edict, which he ordered published in all the provinces of the kingdom, and he ordered it translated from the Persian into whatever was the most 
common language spoken in each province, stating that at a time to come, on the 13th day of the month, Adar, that the people should kill the Jews and take their property. Now, if anybody was still in doubt that Mordecai was a Jew, all doubt was now dispensed with. Mordecai went into public mourning, fasting and wearing sackcloth, as did the rest of the Jews when they heard that they were going to be slaughtered. Now, the book never says that any one of them prayed to be delivered from this massacre. Only the additions to Esther found in the Greek say that. The Hebrew text of Esther, Compare is absolutely correct about. They simply put on sackcloth and fasted in mourning against their coming massacre. Then Mordecai sent word to Esther, who by this time was queen, that unless she could get the king to change this edict, that she, like the other Jews, would be killed, because she was a Jewess too. So she agreed she would try to persuade the king to change his mind. The new queen, Esther, known by all who knew her as having been raised as the daughter of the Jew Mordecai, now doubly advertised her Jewishness by also dressing in sackcloth and fasting in mourning and compelling all her maidservants to do likewise, as if that wouldn't raise the curiosity of the eunuchs and the king. Unless any of the people of the kingdom were in a state of total unconsciousness, how they could have avoided knowing that she and Mordecai were Jews is not explained. And Comparate did well to raise all of these conflicting issues. But actually, according to Esther chapter 2, Esther is queen by the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign wherein Esther chapter 3, lots are being cast in the court before Haman until the end of the 12th year of his reign. So these events didn't happen until the 12th year of Artaxerxes and the 13th. The edict was issued to exterminate the Jews in the first month of the following year, according to Esther 3.12. So Esther's already supposedly been the queen for almost six years, according to the book of Esther, which we know never happened, but that's what the book is claiming. Now as for Haman, he is called in Esther Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And we see that Haman is a Hebrew name. Triton Strong's Concordance has a Hebrew meaning. And Hamadatha is a Hebrew name. And it's Triton Strong's Concordance, it has a Hebrew meaning. Yet, in the Greek additions to Esther, found in a portion of what we know as chapter 8 of Esther, the Septuagint identifies Haman as a Macedonian, a Macedonian, a Greek. But how should a Greek Macedonian have Hebrew names is beyond me. Even if in the most ancient times the Macedonians were derived from the Hebrews, they had very well developed their own language and their own names which were all Greek by this time, a thousand years later. 
Moreover, the word agagite, Haman's called an agagite. The word agagite seems only to be an epithet, meaning I will overtop, and that's possible. And the Greeks who wrote the additional part of Esther seem to have taken that literally. And in the Greek Esther, he's called the Bougain. And Bougain is from the Greek Bougahias, and that's a Homeric Greek epithet, which means braggart. So the Greeks that made the Septuagint took the word agagai, and they translated it literally. However, the original Strong's definition, in the original Strong's Concordance, lists the word agagai as coming from the word agag. And agag was a title or a name of certain kings of the Amalekites. And we see a gag mentioned in Numbers chapter 24, and we see a gag mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And a gagite, according to your original Strong's Concordance, is a patronymic word from a gag, just like every other patronymic Hebrew word. And that makes perfect sense. So the book of Esther in the Hebrew is identifying Haman as an Agagite, ostensibly from the Amalekites, and the not to say that Haman ever really existed, and the Septuagint takes that Agagite, translates it literally, since I will overtop, is a brag, and they call Haman a braggart, and then in their additions to Esther, they make them a Macedonian. And I'm going to make these conclusions when we conclude with Esther Part 3 at the end of the critique of this book and, and Compare's critique of it. But basically, understanding the relationship historically between the Persians and the Macedonians, because Alexander the Great, who conquered Persia, was a Macedonian. The additions to Esther, identifying Haman as a Macedonian, basically reveal that the additions to Esther were written in the Hellenistic period. Now, there's overt evidence of that because at the very end of the additions to Esther, it mentions Caesar, I'm sorry, it mentions Ptolemy and Cleopatra. Mentioning Ptolemy and Cleopatra shows that the additions to Esther were written in the Hellenistic period and very late in the Hellenistic period because Ptolemy and Cleopatra well, Ptolemy died a little sooner, and that might refer to her father or any one of two of her brothers because she was married to both of them. Um, Cleopatra was pretty sick. But um, she died in 30 BC after the Battle of Actium. So that's when the Greek additions to Esther were probably written in her time sometime before 30 B.C. Now, the Book of Esther itself might be a little older than that, and we will discuss some of those details in Part 3 
of this series. In the Greek edition to Esther, there's a lengthy interpolation at the end of Esther chapter 3, verse 12, which is allegedly a copy of the letter which Artaxerxes issued decreeing that all of the Jews of the empire would be destroyed and their property confiscated in one day. There are things which Esther says about the decrees of the Persian kings which are quite incredible. In the Persian Empire, as in the Babylonian Empire, which preceded it, Aramaic was the lingua franca, meaning the common tongue of the government and diplomacy and of international trade. When inscriptions were made, and there's countless examples from archaeology, they usually at this time appeared in Persian and Aramaic. While sometimes the Persian inscriptions were trilingual, like the Behistun rock is trilingual, and they included Akkadian as well as Persian and Aramaic, or Farsi, if you want to use that term instead of Persian. And Akkadian the third language was the lingua franca of the old Assyrian Empire that preceded the Babylonians. Not by long here, maybe by 160, 170 years. But the official decrees of the empire, usually made in bilingual or trilingual tablets or inscriptions, would never be translated into various dialects of every ethnicity within the empire. They had a lingua franca. That's why they had a language of trade, diplomacy, and government. As we had discussed in the first part of the series, the reign of Artaxerxes coincided with the time of Ezra. Surely Ezra, the great scribe, would have gotten a copy of this decree since he was sitting in Jerusalem, rebuilding the city at this very time. And since at this very time, he was one of the governors of a province within the empire. Yet he was completely ignorant of it. In all of his writing, as were the three notable Hebrew prophets of the same period and later than Ezra, which were Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Even more oddly, According to Esther, the king decreed, when we read the book of Esther, the king decreed on the 13th day of the first month that all of the Jews were to be destroyed on the 13th day of the 12th month. This is 11 months' notice of their impending doom, and none of them seemed to protest. Imagine if the current American president said, I'm going to have all the Irishmen killed in 11 months, and Congress passed a law. Do you think that the, well, the Irish might sit around in bars, right? Do you really think the Irish would sit on their asses for 11 months and do nothing? Maybe wear sackcloth and ashes. What if a white president said, okay, in 11 months, we're going to kill all the niggers? You think 
killing all the niggers and announcing that 11 months from now, you think the niggers would sit on their hands and, and mourn? Or would we have Baltimore and, and, and <laughs> Missouri all over the country? We'd have Baltimore all over the country. That's what we'd have. There's no doubt. But these Jews, that they don't appeal to their God. They just put on sackcloth and ashes and play with themselves and oy vey for 11 months, maybe, because they're Jews. They would be up in arms. Any rational people would that this decree goes out throughout the whole empire. We're going to kill all of this such and such ethnicity 11 months from now. Right. And at the same time, at the same time going on, if we accept Artaxerxes as his king, Ezra could not even find Levites to return to Jerusalem without having to send off the far-off Caspiana. Most of the descendants of the people of Judah taken into captivity had no compulsion whatsoever to return to Jerusalem. Ezra couldn't find enough people to return to Jerusalem. They didn't want to go. The comparison with the claims of modern Zionists in 1930s Germany cannot be missed. And the Jews are still inventing the same lies. Yet in truth, we would refute the notion that any of the people of Ezra and Nehemiah were really Jews at all. But this is an obvious Jewish lie. This whole damn thing, this whole book of Esther, is one huge Jewish lie. And at the end of part three of this series, we will discuss the motives behind those lies. Yes, we will. Because Esther was a race mixer. Nehemiah and Ezra and Daniel were not race mixers. So Esther, going back to Compare. So Esther decided how to do this. How she would change the king's mind. She gave two great banquets from little time apart. And she had the king and Haman invited to attend these two banquets, which they did. At both of these, the first one as well as the second, the king was so well pleased that he told Esther, I will give you anything you, will, you ask, whatever you ask. And, and Compare left it out, but he also added the words, even half the kingdom. And the only other place I've ever seen that in scripture or history, I will give you anything you ask, even half the kingdom. The only place I ever saw that in scripture and history were in the words of Herod when he lusted over his own daughter dancing on his birthday. Did she ask, well, don't massacre the Jews? This is at that, at that first feast, right? No, not a word. Not until the second one. And she wasn't even sure what he would that he would be in a good mood when he came to the second. But she let it go until the second banquet. Now, between these two banquets, Mordecai again insults and angers Haman still more. So Haman is in a furious rage. 
remember that he has already gotten authority from the king to kill every Jew in the kingdom. Not only is he second in command of the whole kingdom and therefore able to do it on his own, but he has even gotten a specific decree from the king, published as official law, and he knows Mordecai is a Jew. And that's a good point, Compre raises, because Haman should have just killed him immediately. But with all this fuming with rage, he doesn't do a thing about it. But after having been authorized to kill all the Jews, someday, someday or other, he is going to ask the king to have Mordecai hanged. And in anticipation of it, he builds a big high gallows on which Mordecai can be hanged. He doesn't even wait until he has asked the king to do that. And according to Herodotus, the customary method of execution the Persians used at this time was to crucify them. According to Herodotus and other ancient historians, when a, um, when a Persian subject disgraced his nation or his rulers, it was customary for the rulers to have their nose and ears cut off. But there's no mention of that at all. That was a common custom in ancient Persia, according to some historians, and there was no mention of that at all in Esther. There was an even more ridiculous scenario depicted in Esther chapters 5 and 6 than Compare relates here, and we have to take time to discuss that. The first banquet with the king. Esther and Haman is depicted in Esther chapter 5. Then during that banquet, a second banquet for the same three people was planned for the following day. And Haman is depicted as having another run-in with Mordecai after he leaves the night of the first banquet and going home to his wife to explain everything to her. Then of events which supposedly transpired during the intervening night. We read at the beginning of Esther chapter 6 from verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were to be read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bignatha and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now that gallows was only just suggested by his wife when Haman went home earlier that same evening after the first feast and told his wife what happened with Mordecai. And his wife said, why don't you just build a big gallows and hang him on it? So the text of Esther said that Haman built the big gallows and went to the king's house and asked him if he could hang Mordecai on it. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman stands in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman, who had already been scheduled to appear at the king's court 
for a banquet with Esther later that same day, decided to show up at the king's palace sometime in the middle of the night instead? That's just nuts. If you want to believe that, I'm sure you've bought some used cars from Jews. And the king just happened to be awake to see him? By chance, right? Furthermore, Haman and everyone else supposedly being ignorant that Esther was a Jewess, nobody knew it, according to Esther, and of her connection to Mordecai, the Jew lawyer, nobody knew it. Why would he need to talk to the king so urgently and had not spoken to him the previous day as they sat at dinner together? In addition to these absurdities, Haman is depicted as having had a towering 50-foot gallows built sometime between leaving the first banquet after dinner, going home to describe everything to his wife, and returning to the palace later that same night. That entire scenario is completely unrealistic. That's worse than most of today's Jew sitcoms. Much worse. Back to Compare. The book says that somebody reminds the king that Mordecai was the man who reported the assassination plot and saved the king's life. And no reward had ever been given him for this. So the king decides, yes, there should be a reward for Mordecai. So Haman, the prime minister, comes in about that time, which is in the middle of the night, and says, Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king desires especially to honor? Haman says to himself, well, that must be me. Who else could it be? Now, it must also be remembered that the preface to the book of Esther explained that Mordecai was already honored and given gifts for all this in the second year of Artaxerxes. Back to Compare. So Haman says, why, the thing to do is dress him in royal robes, have him ride upon your own horse, bring him to the streets, parade him before the people with heralds, they're blowing trumpets and telling the people, this is the man the king delights to honor. Then the king says, well, that sounds like a good idea, good idea, Haman, you do that for Mordecai. Well, that rather stuns Haman, he has waited too long to get Mordecai put away. So he goes home to consult with his wife, and his wife says, if, note this now, and this is Compare's little, little remark, if Mordecai is a Jew, you are certain to fall before him. How anybody could have had any question about whether Mordecai was a Jew or not is not explained, but it is still apparent, apparently in doubt in everybody's mind. And I'm going to say that the real discrepancy in this story is evident in Esther 6, too. Where in Esther 6, too, it says that after the king commanded the book of the Chronicles to be brought, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bignatha and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. Yet, back when Esther had revealed the plot to the king, in Esther chapter 3, we read, In those days, when Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. 
And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. Now, if Esther related it to the king in Mordecai's name, the king knew who was responsible for revealing the alleged plot. And the question need not be raised at all. Six years later, if we observe the times in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6 is at least six years later after Esther 321. But at the second banquet, back to Compare, at the second banquet, Haman rather misbehaves himself, incurs the king's wrath, and Esther now reveals to the king what everybody in all of Persia must have known by that time, that she is a Jewess. In other words, there was no way to conceal it all this time. That is another absolutely absurd aspect of the book of Esther, that she is a Jewess, and she says, the official proclamation, the king's edict, has gone out to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. You remember how that came about. There was a personal discussion between Haman and the king. Haman offered a bribe equal to $20 million for the privilege of killing all the Jews and taking their property. And the king thought it was such a good idea, even though if this is Artaxerxes or Darius I or Cyrus or any other Persian king of that early period, they had already made many proclamations very kind to the Judeans, to Daniel, to, to Ezra, to Nehemiah. So this is absolutely absurd. And the king thought it was such a good idea, he wouldn't even take any payment. And the king himself issued the edict that it should be done. But now when Esther tells him that the edict has gone out, that on the 13th day of Adar, which has not yet come, the Jews are to be killed. The king is astonished to hear that any of this has happened. He doesn't know anything about it. Well, he orders Haman to be hanged, and Haman is hanged on a big high gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, which Haman, um, Haman ordered, built that night after he had gone home and talked to his wife for a while and went back to the king's house and in the middle of the night. And I guess that the workmen must have started at, at like 2 or 3 a.m. and were already done with a 50-foot gallows by this time. The whole story is retarded, right? Only it's like a comic book. This isn't real. None of it's real. Here, Compare raises a very valid point. It is not every day that a Persian king would issue an edict concerning the extermination of an entire ethnicity of people in every province of the empire, and then not realize who Esther was talking about after she made an appeal. He said, who did this, right? Yet this is how the story depicts the exchange. We're going to read it, Esther Chapter 7, from verse 3. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition, and my people at my request, for we are sold, and I am my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen, 
and bondwomen, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? He should have first asked her, Are you a Jew? Examining the text of Esther, for instance, at Esther 4.11 and at Esther 5.1, we can see with all clarity from the time of the decree against the Jews that the king sat and wrote out, and the additions to Esther had this huge, long, flowery language of a decree. From the time that the king wrote out the decree against the Jews to the time of Esther's appeal to the king here on behalf of the Jews, only about seven weeks have elapsed. Seven weeks. That's it. And that time can be easily gathered from Esther 4.11 and Esther 5.1. And then the decree reversing the order to exterminate the Jews, because it says that they were to be exterminated, the order was first made on the 13th day of the first month, right? The order reversing the order to exterminate the Jews is issued as Esther chapter 7 or, or 8 say, on the 23rd day of the third month. That's two months and ten days after the first decree. So here's the catch. This is a big decree signed by the king that all the Jews throughout all the empire are going to be exterminated. And within seven weeks, he forgets. Why would the king forget such an important decree after only seven weeks? to the point where he had no clue as to what Esther had, had referred to? That's the way it reads in Esther chapter 7. The book of Esther makes the king of Persia out to be a bigger dupe than any American president's ever been. That's just the way the Jews like their politicians. Then the king, going back to then the king tells Esther that he will set aside this decree, and he says, you write a new decree, anything, whatever you want, and seal it with my seal, so it is official, anything you want, send it out. Now you remember, this was the same Medo-Persian Empire, which came in and conquered Babylon. And you remember, in the early days of it, which aren't really long before Esther, they can't be. The prophet Daniel was still alive in Babylon. And you should also know that everything which archaeologists have discovered that has any bearing on the events in the book of Daniel has consistently confirmed the book of Daniel as truthful. And Jesus Christ himself spoke of him as Daniel the prophet. So I think we can accept as true what is in the book of Daniel. And it certainly is, even though the chapters are out of order a little. Some of the pagans in Babylon wanted to get rid of Daniel. So they went to this Persian king and said, we would like you to make a decree for a month to come. Any man who offers any prayer to any god except you, O king, shall he be killed. Well, that flattered the king. All the people would have to pray 
all the people would have to pray to him as a god. So he said, fine, I will do it. And he made the decree. So the pagans watched Daniel for a few days, and they caught him praying to Yahweh God. Then they went back to the king and said, Aha! You remember that decree you made? Yes, said the king. Well, we have caught this fellow Daniel praying to a different god, so under the law, he has to be killed, thrown to the lions. It says the king liked Daniel very much, and he tried to find some way to get around this and relieve Daniel of the penalty. But the pagans reminded the king that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be altered. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't ever make a new law, but what it meant was that so far as the law which had been passed, it could not be altered retroactively. Then the king, squirming around and trying to get out of it, found he couldn't. So you remember he had Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and only the help of God got Daniel out again. Now here we're going to read that chapter of Daniel 6 and read it to make a point. The point is that Compre's right, according to the book of Daniel, the laws of the, of the Persians could not be altered. Once a law was made, they stuck to it. Nobody could change it. That was their policy. Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius, and by that policy, they were very careful of what laws they made. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king sought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes was assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, except of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not, in other words, which never changes. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spoke before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou, hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days except for thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And the king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Doesn't change. Then answered 
they and said before the king, that Daniel, who was of the children of the captivity of Judah, regards not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but makes his petition three times a day, meaning that he prays to his own God. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, No, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is, that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. The book The book of Esther is in direct contradiction to that. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel, and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, By God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And he did. But the king didn't want Daniel to go to the lions. He loved Daniel. But he had no choice because the law could not be changed. An account, and I think I touched on this last week, an account from the rule of the Persian king Cambyses, who followed Daniel by a couple of generations, actually. Cambyses was the grandson of Darius. An account from the rule of Cambyses, known from Book 3 of the Histories of Herodotus, rather indirectly corroborates the story in Daniel. In that account, Cambyses wanted to marry his own sister. But first, he had the Persian magistrates investigate as to whether such an arrangement would violate any existing laws, because that would have barred the marriage, and he wouldn't have been able to change the law. And this betrays the fact that the Persian king would not have been allowed to change any existing Persian law. So we have, we have it in Daniel, and we could see it in Herodotus. But Esther is bullshit. Back to Camparei. But when Esther asks the king to set aside the law that was made, he does so and tells her to write any kind of a decree she wants. Sign it with a seal and make it official, changing the law of the Medes and Persians. So she wrote a new decree which says that the Jews are hereby authorized and commanded to destroy, to slay, and cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, to take the spoil of them for a prey. Esther chapter 8, verse 11. And Compare says, with his tongue planted firmly in cheek, well, that part of the book of Esther is certainly authentic, so far as it reveals Jewish character. You remember as soon as the Jews came to power in Russia, they began murdering the Christians, including the women and the children. So the book of Esther goes on to say, many of the people of the land became Jews for fear of the Jews. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai was upon them. Esther 9.3 Because Mordecai had been appointed prime minister now in place of Haman.
and it's all bullshit. It never happened. And it's contrary to the spirit of Ezra and Nehemiah that people would simply be allowed to convert to be Jews, to, to follow and, and to identify themselves with the God of Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah would have rejected that idea. It's explicit in their own books. The, um, the idea of converting the heathens to the religion of the Hebrews is not found in the books of the Maccabees. All the cities that the early Maccabees con- had conquered, the people, the Canaanite and other peoples who dwelt in them, were run out, if we read one Maccabees. They ran out the heathens from everywhere. But the book one Maccabees, and this is probably not by accident, the book stops at 134 B.C. There's no more. It ends there, 134 B.C. And that is when the rule of John Hyrcanus had begun. John Hyrcanus, according to Flavius Josephus, he went around and everybody that he conquered, he forced into circumcision and converted to be Jews. So that practice is unknown in the history of Judah until 134 B.C. and the rule of John of John Hyrcanus. So that attitude alone, that spirit to me, is agreeable to that late Hellenistic period. And that's when the additions to Esther must have been written in order to somehow give some approval to the idea of people converting to be Jews. Because that practice came into vague after the Edomites were conquered and circumcised and became Judeans. That'll be it for this evening. We'll probably, um, that wasn't planned, those last 10 minutes, so I'm sure I'll be repeating them next week where I have them in my notes. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.